I'm wildlife veterinarian, Dr. Michelle Neeland, and this is the Wildlife Health Connections Podcast. We're taking you deep into every corner of wildlife health and conservation. Let's go. Hello, friends, and welcome to the first episode of the Wildlife Health Connections podcast. When I got the idea to start this podcast and I started planning things out, there were a lot of things I didn't know and details I hadn't figured out yet. But the one thing I did know right from the start was who I wanted to have as my first guest. This amazing person I'm talking about is Dr. Mark Pokris. If you're involved in the world of wildlife health, there's a good chance you already know his name. Yeah, he's kind of a big deal. But he's also one of the most humble people on the planet who never toots his own horn. So I'll do it for him. Mark is a wildlife veterinarian with five decades of experience working on everything from pathology, ecotoxicology, clinical wildlife medicine, zoo medicine, research, teaching, and too many other things to list. He's currently Associate Professor Emeritus at Tufts Cumming School of Veterinary Medicine, where he's been a faculty member since 1988. He was also the director of the Tufts Wildlife Clinic from 1995 to 2008. And in addition to all of that, Mark is one of the people who first introduced the term conservation medicine and initially developed that whole field. He then went on to help found the Tufts Center for Conservation Medicine. If you haven't heard the term before, conservation medicine is an interdisciplinary field that focuses on health relationships between humans, animals, and the environment. The goal of conservation medicine is to sustain biodiversity and protect ecosystems for improved health of wildlife, domestic animals, and people as well. And even though it has the word medicine in the title, this isn't just a field for vets and human doctors. It also involves many different professions across the realms of biology, ecology, environmental sciences, the social sciences, economics, and many others. This field is becoming an increasingly important part of wildlife health, and today there are conservation medicine programs at many universities and institutions around the world. If this piques your interest and you want to learn more, I've included some links in the show notes. Mark's technically supposed to be retired right now, but I don't see any evidence of that aside from a slightly grayer beard. He actually seems busier than ever these days, collaborating on a bunch of projects, organizing working groups, helping students, giving talks, and he's even writing a book. The last time I saw Mark in person, we met up in a Cabela's parking lot in Maine so I could borrow his autopsy saw and talk about loon tracheas, which sounds like a totally normal sentence if you've ever been lucky enough to work with Mark before. He's also the reason why I currently have a bag full of frozen severed bird legs in my freezer next to the frozen pizza. Don't worry, those came from birds that were already dead. We only just scratched the surface in our interview today, and there are so many more other things that I want to talk to Mark about. He's definitely going to be a frequent flyer here on the podcast. So if this episode leaves you wanting more Mark, don't worry, he'll be back soon. In this episode, we learn about Mark's crazy path to becoming the wildlife vet that he is today. From living in Venezuela dissecting anacondas, to doing bird surgeries on his dining room table, and then starting vet school just a year after losing his leg to cancer. He's an inspiration, an example of the type of vet and person I strive to be. And he's just one of my favorite humans on the planet. I'm so excited for you guys to meet him. So here he is, Dr. Mark Pogress. So how's it going? 
Oh, craziness. I mean, good stuff, but uh, lots of irons in the fire. You know that feeling. You are not slowing down. There's too much to do. <laughs> okay. I know Mark pretty well, so I figured I'd just start out by immediately putting him on the spot. Do you remember when we met? When we met? Well, let's see. I remember you were an undergraduate at Tufts. Um, mm -hmm. It was 2007, <laughs> which seems like forever ago, 13, almost 14 years ago now. And I was taking a conservation bio class. And you came and gave us a guest lecture as part of there that class. And I think it was it was basically talking about the importance of wildlife health <laughs> and how that relates to conservation and conservation biology. In you come and start giving your lecture. And it was one of those moments where it was like the the two neurons like finally connected <laughs> in, in my brain where it's like wildlife conservation, vet work. Oh, you can do both. This is awesome. And it was just that, that like, oh my God, aha yep, moment. Yep. And just, I remember sitting in the back and just, just soaking in everything you were saying in the whole lecture. And I was, you know, like I mentioned, I was way in the back of this lecture hall and I was just like, oh my goodness, I, I need, he's amazing. <laughs> I need to talk to him. And I'm way in the back and I just, I remember, I vividly remember this. I'm just climbing <laughs> over the seats of the lecture hall, literally like pushing people out of uh -huh. the way. And I'm like, no, I'm talking to him. <laughs> and which you know me well yeah. enough and you know that that's so, so out of character yeah. for me. And I, you know, I get down to the front of the lecture hall and you're there and I was all excited. And then I didn't know what to say. <laughs> <laughs> Crap, I forgot to plan. What am I going to ask him? What am I going to say? And... You were just so nice and gracious. And I think, you know, I kind of scribbled my email on a piece of paper and handed it to you and, and you did the same. And that's where it all started. <laughs> and now, and here we are God, today. All these years later, yeah, sitting in front of microphones together. That's, that's fun. And think about all the marvelous things you've done in between. This interview is not about me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to keep pushing the spotlight back on you, but... You know, I really, without getting like too overly sentimental, one of the reasons why I wanted to have you as one of our first guests on this podcast is because you really have been the the pivotal person in my career. Saying it face to face or Zoom to Zoom, like thank you so much. You've you've really been the person that's helped me kind of shape my career and and help me get to where I am. And I'm just so grateful. You know, I'm I'm. <laughs> pleased and honored and overjoyed to have been able to do that with you. But we're not done yet. <laughs> I right. mean, it's only, we're just it's only been 13 years. We have, you know, we know. have a long way to go. We have a lot of unfinished projects to work on. And I mean, sort of sitting back and philosophizing for a minute, this is, you know, where I get to be the gray beard and, you know, stroke my beard and think about this kind of thing. And you and I have had this conversation before, you know, when I think about what I've been doing for professionally for, I mean, this is 50 years at this point. This is a long time. <laughs> I, can't, yeah. I can't believe it's been five decades or, or more. Um, I mean, you know how I sell myself. You know, I'm basically an educator and a clinician and 
you know, as I've said to you and said to Vin and said to many other people, I don't consider myself a brilliant researcher. You know, um, what I, if I've got a superpower, if I've got a strength, I think my strength is working with other people and, and networking and, you know, and sitting down with young people like you. Uh, side note, when we recorded this interview, it was actually my 36th birthday. So <laughs> thanks, Mark, for calling me a young person. How did the journey to becoming the, the Mark Pokeris that you are today, how did that happen? When I met you, you were kind of in the last decade of your, I'm not going to say the last decade of your career, because I think you have several more decades <laughs> to go, but I guess you're the last decade pre-retirement career. So I kind of came in towards the end. So there's this whole kind of backstory of how you got interested in wildlife health. What made you go to vet school? From the time I was tiny, you know, I, I've been wanting to be outdoors and play with critters. And so, you know, we lived out on a farm um, on Lawyersville Road. And, you know, I could walk out in the back and go forever into the woods. And there were ponds and there was a uh, <coughs> guy who grew beef cattle next door. I remember a huge bull <laughs> there that I was not supposed to climb over the fence to visit. So, um, you know, across the street, there was a, when I think back, a very poor family, the Slaters, and they had a son, Sonny Slater, who was sort of my age. And his father was one of those local guys who just made a living, whatever he could do. You know, he'd help with haying in the fall, but one of the things he did was trapping. And so when I went over to their house, he was always skinning something. <laughs> and there were, mm. You know, there were bodies around and there were skins out on racks drying. And they, oh my gosh, is that where your interest in pathology, that's where it all you started? You know, when I look back, I have no idea, but I so clearly remember the smells and the skins and things like that from Sonny Slater's porch <laughs> um, in Copleskill. So, so that stuff was sort of imprinted into me. So aside from being surrounded by dead animal parts, Mark led a pretty normal childhood spending lots of time outside and growing up with an appreciation for the natural world. But then in middle school, his whole life was uprooted. But anyway, when I was in seventh grade, um, my father came home one day and he said, what would you think about moving to Mexico? Oh, and, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and my mother was, my mother was a little hesitant at first. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and, and so we did. Moving out of the U.S. because of his father's job, Mark spent a year in Mexico and then moved to Venezuela for high school. And it was in the midst of um, the FALM, the revolutionary Cuban movement trying to take over the Venezuelan government. So there were heavily armed police, <laughs> you know, around, you know, our school got shot up oh one gosh. day by, by, by revolution. Nobody got hurt, but, you know, it was, oh it my was gosh. interesting. But it was that kind of international stuff. You know, when, when you went to lunch, you'd be sitting with, you know, Edgar from Ethiopia and Mary from England, Heidi from Holland, you know, and you'd be talking, everybody would bring different stuff for lunch and, you know, be reading different languages yeah. and, and, and that kind of cultural richness and learning to appreciate one another as human beings was just a phenomenal experience, uh, you know, opens your eyes in ways that 
you know, being a seventh grader in New Jersey never did. I mean, I had great teachers in New Jersey, but it was a very typical suburban experience. Living in Latin America for those years really helped shape Mark's worldview. And although he didn't know it at the time, helped prepare him for his future career as a wildlife vet. Quick segue back to when I was little and living in Cobleskill. Because one of the stories my grandparents used to tell is they'd bring me toys for like my birthday or holidays. They'd bring a big truck or a bicycle. And what they'd say is they'd give Mark the toy and then they'd go in the other room to do grown-up stuff. And they'd come back and Mark would have taken the toy <laughs> apart and there'd be a pile of pieces on the floor. I've always liked taking things apart to figure out how they work. You know, toys, computers, animals, whatever it happens to be. And so when I was at Canaima or when I was in Latin America, you know, when they shot something for dinner, um, I would always volunteer to skin it, you know, or, you know, open it up and see how it's, I was always fascinated, you know, how's a crocodile put together? How's an anaconda put together? How's a bird put together? Yeah, I can totally see where Mark gets his love of comparative anatomy. So fast forward a few years, after high school, Mark's family moved back to the U.S. And at one point, Mark almost decided to become a professional musician. And so I was thinking about doing that. And my father, who's a very wise man, said, do you know about the life of a musician? And so he made arrangements with a professional musician for me to go out on the road for a few weeks. And I did that and I decided to become a biologist. <laughs> <laughs> you know, living, doing one night stands and living out of a suitcase and eating junk was, yeah, it was not what I wanted to be. Oh my gosh, thank, um, well, thank God. So Mark went on to study biology and ecology at Cornell University. And he also had an interest in marine biology, but apparently that didn't work out. In high school, I kept writing to Jacques Cousteau. <laughs> did he ever write um, back? He never, oh. <laughs> really, you know, I, I, would write, I would write to him all the time saying, can I come work for you next summer? I really wanted to, but you know, he never wrote back. Philippe never wrote back. Um, then after Cornell, this was the height of the Vietnam War. And I was, I had a low draft number, but it was, it was an interesting time. And so after college, I didn't want to take a full-time job right away because I was still trying to work things out with the draft and figure out, you know, where I was going to be yeah. for the next few years. And I took a job as a field research assistant and spent the next almost a year in the field collecting field data on osprey and banding them. And, and so this was, they were looking at the effects of DDT on osprey embryo development and eggshell thickness and things like that. This was just before DDT was banned. Um, and so I would drive, you know, climb up to osprey nests and weigh the young and take the unhatched eggs and drive them over to Oscar Sussman's lab at Princeton for analysis and learn all about the environmental toxicology end of things from, from being, you know, the, the poorly paid low on the totem pole field assistant. Okay. So we can kind of see where this is going now. And this field biologist position is where Mark first got his experience working with wild birds and his first experience with ecotoxicology. But a little while later, there was one fateful night that really set him on his future path. I was driving home one night on the Jersey Turton. Well, anyway, I was driving home one night and 
I saw something flopping at the side of the road and I stopped to pick it up and it was a hawk that had been hit by a car. And I st stuck it in a box in the car and tried to find help for it. And no, there weren't rehabilitators around. I called a couple of veterinarians. They, they didn't know what to do with it, but we were not far from Brigantine National Wildlife Refuge. So I drove over there. <clears throat> um, very nice folks. They were concerned. They didn't know what to do with it, but they said, we'll lend you a cage. See what you can do. <laughs> so they lent me a wire cage, took it home. The bird died overnight. Yeah. And I went, damn, you know, somebody must know something to do about this. And I got frustrated with it. Long story short, um, my wife and I talked to the people at Brigantine and talked to some of the local veterinarians. We ended up opening a rehabilitation center in our backyard. Um, and over the next few years, it became what at that point was the largest rehabilitation center on the East Coast, avian, avian ARC, avian rehabilitation center. Oh my gosh, I had no idea. Uh, yeah. And so, you know, I was doing all the ecology stuff. I was interested in conservation. I was working in that area and we were taking care of herd animals. And I kept taking the animals to veterinarians. I had a couple of vets I was working with. Um, Ralph Warner was one of the best ones. And fabulous vet, a pen grad, who would try anything. Really good surgeon. And he encouraged me <laughs> in a lot of ways. Um, and so it, you know, I was doing orthopedic surgery under ether on the dining room table for for years. Um, uh, you know, I, 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 I estimate I'd done several thousand orthopedic surgeries before I applied to vet school the wow. first time. Uh, um, yeah. Despite all his work in wildlife rehab, at this point in the story, Mark still thought he didn't have what it takes to become a vet. But sometimes all we need is a little encouragement. And so uh, I was looking at graduate school and I was looking at PhD programs and not enthralled with them for a variety of positions. And it was actually a friend of mine, Lee Rosenson, who took me out to dinner to give me career advice. And he said, have you ever thought about veterinary medicine? And my answer was no. <laughs> so um, the guy who's doing birth surgeries on the dining room table. <laughs> oh yeah, but that's because I like to take things apart. <laughs> um, and it, and, and it was because I had been cowed as an undergraduate by all the pre-meds and mm, pre-vets I knew. Mm -hmm. I remember saying to Lee, I, I can't do that. They're, they were all so smart. You know, they were taking, you know, physics three and biochemistry four and PCHEM and all this stuff that I, you know, I can't, I'm not that kind of academic. Um, and he said, you don't know until you try. <laughs> <laughs> And so, again, long story short, started learning about veterinary schools. You had to write letters back then. So applied the first year to, I think, six or seven schools. Um, didn't get into any of them. Um, I got, didn't get an interview. No, I did. I got an interview at Tufts. That was the only interview I got. It was Tufts' first year. They were, you know, they were looking for their oh, admission the, yeah class. the first year they yeah. they opened and what what year was that this would have been 1979 okay. um and didn't get in anywhere went back to teaching and this was the year that uh, we found out i had cancer 
and I had to have surgery and lost my leg. Uh, yep. That's a twist in the story I bet you didn't see coming. And so the second year that I was applying to veterinary school, I had just had my leg amputated. That didn't deter you at all, it sounds like. <laughs> you, it sounds like you just were like, oh, yeah, we got rid of that pesky leg. Like, let's just charge forward. You, you like, know, it, but I'm sure there's more than that. There's way more than that. And, and I'm trying to shorten the story. We can, we can, you know, we can talk about that for a long time if you want. It, it was like it gave me something to live for. You know, I was mm. so despondent. Um, you know, I was this outdoor person who had been looking for a career outdoors climbing trees and they just cut my leg off. Um, yeah. And so having this goal, it was just like this lighting a fire. Was, you know, I'm gonna do this come hell or yeah. high water. Uh, I applied the next year. Uh, and had two interviews, one at Penn and one at Tufts, nowhere else. And the one at Penn was interesting. It was a committee interview or five or six people. And all they wanted to talk about was my disability. <clears throat> it's mm. like, how can you do this? Um, mm. And I went and interviewed at Tufts. And, and they talked about that for five minutes, but, that, but not much. I interviewed with Al Jonas, who was the first dean, and Bob Cook, who was an equine uh, um, respiratory guy, and Irv Leave, who was a pathologist. Um, and so it was an entirely different interview. They were more concerned that I wanted to do wildlife because they thought nobody does vet medicine on wildlife. That's a crazy career choice. <laughs> 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 So we talked about that and I think I convinced them that there was something there. And, oh, there's a brown creeper out there on the tree. Oh. Really cool. Oh, cool. Um, anyway. Um, and so I think, I think Tufts let me in because they were just intrigued. <laughs> you know, they were, <laughs> were kind of like, they're like, yeah, we've never, yeah, seen, like... we've never seen anything like this before. He, you know, he, yeah, they're like, I don't know, let's, let's see where this, what this guy can do. <laughs> sure. You know, um, and, and Tufts was wonderful about it. You know, I remember sitting down with the dean and with Bob Cook, who was associate dean at that point, and they were going to be infinitely flexible with the, with the clinical part of the curriculum. Bob Cook said, if there's any clinical rotations that you feel would be dangerous or that you don't want to do, let us know and we'll find alternatives. Yeah. And I was stubborn. I was, I was like, well, I'm going to try them all. <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah. I mean, what's the worst yeah. that could happen? I'll get kicked by a cow, you know? So, uh, um, so yeah. Um, so I did them all um, and got through it and made wonderful friends and, you know, have made a career in wildlife medicine. But probably, I remember my second interview because I came in uh, you know, with one leg on crutches, with a wig, not a hair on my body from chemotherapy, um, and not an eyebrow, not a, you know, no, no, nothing. Um, and, um, and I hadn't thought about it, but there were people interviewing that year who had been in the interview with me the year before, when I had a beard and two legs. <laughs> Oh, <laughs> right. And, and I'll never forget the look on Lisa Eshman's face 
when she figured out it was still me. <laughs> oh my goodness, yeah. <laughs> you know, it was like, you know, that probably was one of the hardest things about that second interview was dealing with the feelings of the people. Um, yeah. Because I wasn't prepared for that. I'm glad you told that whole story because I feel like in all the years that I've known you, I kind of just don't think about it. You know, I don't, I don't think of you as having a disability or, you know, having a handicap and it's not something that I feel like has limited you in any way, at least in the years that I've <laughs> known you. <laughs> I mean, do you feel like as you went forward in your career, you had to make different choices or did it? Oh, absolutely. 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 Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, there's a lot of, I, I think it's kept me from a whole variety of, of field work that I would have liked to have done. <clears throat> you know, I can't carry a 40 pound pack and walk 10 miles. You know, I, I can't easily get very high up in a tree. I mean, I can manage it with, you know, ropes and climb jumars and things like that, but it's, it's harder. Um, yeah. particularly as I get older, <clears throat> you know, my wife doesn't let me go up on a ladder with a chainsaw anymore. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> don't know why. <laughs> uh, so this is one that has shaped what I've done. You know, I've, yeah. wor I've worked a lot with smaller wildlife <clears throat> than big stuff because I can handle them um, much, you know, much easier than, you know, dealing with, Af you know, a 400 pound lion or a 3000 pound elephant. Um, <clears throat> You know, not that I haven't played around with them a little bit, but, you know, it's like, it's the lemons and lemonade story. You know, mm -hmm. if I had to do it over again, would I ever choose to have my leg amputated? It's like, no, are you crazy? <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> um, but on the other hand, <clears throat> one unexpected benefit of the whole thing is no one ever forgets meeting me. And, and I'm not saying I'm a rock star and it's not because of my skills, but you know, when I go to a veterinary meeting or a society for conservation biology meeting or a wildlife society meeting, I'm pretty much the only amputee there. Yeah. You're, you're Mark Pokris. You're, you're the one-legged wonder. Well, thank you for that. As often in our profession, you know, I mean, in many of the things that you and I do, it used to be that there weren't any women in the room you know, that it was all male veterinarians or male wildlife biologists, that has changed dramatically. Um, it used to be, and it still is in many meetings, that there aren't many African-Americans in the room. You know, that's something we have to work on changing. You know, I mean, to me, and this goes back to growing up, you know, overseas. I mean, to me, diversity is fabulous. Diversity is wonderful. Diversity is strength. Um, Diversity is the world. All right. Quick interjection here, because this issue of diversity in veterinary medicine is so important. In 2013, the Bureau of Labor Statistics actually found that veterinary medicine was the whitest profession in America at over 96%. So obviously, this is a huge issue that we need to work on. Shout out to the National Association for Black Veterinarians and all the other groups working to address this issue of diversity and inclusion in veterinary medicine. Also, check out some of the links in the show notes. So where do we go? Where do we go from here? It's <laughs> a great question. One of the things that you've done is 
I kind of think of you as one of the founding people of the whole conservation medicine field. <laughs> <laughs> I realize we could do a whole episode just on that, but maybe give us a, a brief overview of how that came together. The pieces have always been there. That quote from the, what, the 1860s from Rudolf Virchow about there shouldn't be a difference between human medicine and animal medicine. And I don't have the quote precisely right, but you remember the one mm -hmm. I'm talking about. That quote he's thinking of is from German physician Rudolf Virchow, also known as the father of modern pathology. His famous 1856 quote reads, between animal and human medicine, there is no dividing line, nor should there be. That it all is one health. Um, um, you know, Carl Safina has said this very eloquently in some of his writing, is that we're all part of an evolutionary continuum. You know, I mean, we think about humans having a skeleton, humans having a heart, humans having a digestive system. Well, we inherited it from fish. You know, it's basically, <laughs> it's the same system, just modified to do a few different things. Um, and so this isn't a new thought. It, it, I think it keeps coming up roughly every 40 years or so. And so when I was a vet student, it, before I was a vet student, when I was thinking of applying to veterinary school, the way I first heard about Tufts was an aunt who was living in Boston sent me a little clipping from the Globe about a new vet school that was going to be opening in Massachusetts. This would have been 78, probably, she sent it to me. And it described this sort of thing. And it had in it the term um, one medicine and the word environment. And I had never up until then seen the word environment in any publication from any veterinary school. Yeah. And I thought, I need to find out more about this. <clears throat> yeah. And it turns out that the key piece was the first dean that they hired, Al Jonas, a great advocate for the one medicine concept. <clears throat> and so the idea, one of the ways that he sold and this idea to the trustees of Tufts University, is he said, we can keep costs down by having a bunch of shared courses between the medical students and the veterinary students. We'll put them all in the same classroom, teach them all at the same time, and save costs. <laughs> and Jean Maillet, the president of Tufts at that point, and the board bought it. Um, and it worked for a little while. So that's one reason we started in downtown Boston with the classes, is when I, back when I was a boy, when I was in school, <laughs> we had a series of shared classes with the medical students. You know, physiology was a shared class. You know, all the first year medical students, all the first year veterinary students in a big auditorium in Patton, Patton B, uh, taking it together. It was a disaster for a variety of reasons, but... Oh, no. <laughs> and, and again, I can go into stories about that. Um, but the idea was we get to know one another as students, and we get to respect one another's expertise and begin to share ideas and cross those disciplinary boundaries. And there was a lot of talk around that, you know, the late seventies to the mid eighties about one, the one medicine concept and pandemics and all that sort of thing. I mean, that was an active discussion and it, you know, Al wasn't the dean after a while and the relationship with the medical school fizzled for a whole variety of different reasons and the idea sort of went downhill. But 
people still had it in the back of their minds. And I think the veterinary community was always much more excited about it than the medical community was. So the initial idea of having the med students and the vet students all learning together as one big happy family didn't last. But that concept of sharing knowledge across disciplines didn't fizzle. They just needed to take a slightly different approach. So we had a wildlife program at Tufts. Um, And this would have been mid-90s. I was taking over as head of the wildlife program. And we also had an international veterinary medicine program at Tufts. It was being run by Dave Sherman at that point, who had been a large animal faculty member. Wonderful guy. And Dave and I had a lot of common interests um, and actually did some overseas work in Mexico together. Um, And we had an international student group, IBM, and we had a wildlife student group and they would meet separately. And Dave and I were at lunch one day, talked about our student groups and we realized, you know, 70 or 80% of what the international group is doing is identical to what the wildlife group is doing. They're just doing it in Africa versus this group is doing it here. But it's the same stuff in terms of animal health and wildlife intersecting with domestic animals and human health Mm. and conservation Mm -hmm. and all this stuff. Mark had this idea to start some kind of program that focused on those intersections between wildlife, domestic animals, humans, and the environment. But to get this kind of thing off the ground, he needed money. So he went and met with a trustee of the Rasmussen Foundation to see if they would want to fund that kind of thing. So Dave and I went in and we sat in his office overlooking Boston Harbor, big fancy ass office, <laughs> and got talking about this. And he was quite interested in the idea. And he said, you know, it's a great idea, but he said, you're missing something. And we looked at one another and he said, veterinarians don't know everything there is to know. He said, we would consider funding something like this if you would involve more of the human health aspect. And in the end, they did end up getting that grant to start the program at Tufts. But then they realized they didn't have a name for this thing they were doing. Literally over a bottle of wine with a couple of students, um, invented the term conservation medicine. We said, what are we going to call this group? And we went through a whole bunch of things. You know, one health has been used. Eco-health was a big term at that point. So we didn't want eco-health. We didn't want one medicine. We wanted something that had more of the conservation flavor to it than a medicine flavor to it, because we wanted animals and ecosystems to be the focus rather than human health. And so that's where we came up with the term conservation medicine. So then we got a big grant from the Vicon Rasmussen Foundation, $850,000 over five years, um, and started the Center for Conservation Medicine. Johns Hopkins was a member, Harvard was a member, Wildlife Trust was a member. We had many of our meetings on the Grafton campus, but we also had meetings in New York City at, at Mary's office and had an international conference and published the, those two books on conservation medicine. And there you have it. The entire field of conservation medicine started over a bottle of wine. I love it. Now that we've heard the story of how conservation medicine started, I wanted to wrap up the interview by thinking about the future. I'm curious where you think conservation medicine is going or where we need to go, or where would you like to see it go? Where's conservation medicine going? I think the way we get forward in this field is, in general, 
not by the individual brilliance of any one of us. I mean, you know, uh, neither you nor I is E.O. Wilson or Jane Goodall or, you know, David Attenborough or so. I mean, it's something we could work towards. But I think the progress that we have made and the progress that we're going to make is because of our uh, putting our heads together and our collaborative skill sets. You know, it started out many years ago as regional and then it became national and more and more it's international. And of course the big problems that we're facing are problems of that magnitude. Whether we're talking about the conservation of one species like common loons or whether we're talking about things that are truly global like climate change and pollution and things of that nature. We need everybody involved in this stuff. I guess I've gotten to the age where I'm, I'm more and more convinced that we're not going to have any fundamental changes in human nature. You know, we're, we're a fascinating species. We want to work together. We want to collaborate, but it, it's like magnets. <laughs> you know, you, the, you, you get the wrong face of the magnets too close together. They push against one another. And so there's this approach avoidance thing. Um, and I've seen this in wildlife rehabilitation, and I've seen it in conservation, I've seen it in veterinary medicine. Maybe I'm unusual in that <laughs> I feel so much stronger on the attraction part than the repulsion part. It's like, I wish we'd evolved from something like bonobos instead of something like chimpanzees, so that we were better at this community collaboration stuff and not quite so aggressive in our orientation. What's a way to bring to increase communication and collaboration in a way that's realistic. And it may be a lot of what you're doing today um, and what a lot of us are trying to do with internet tools, but let's increase the bandwidth of those collaborative tools for sharing information. I made that up, but it feels good. <laughs> yeah, no, I love it. I love it. Yeah. So what's next for Mark Pokeris? Well, I'm going to have to get off this phone because as I said, I've got, a, <laughs> I've got another Zoom to get on to talk about building tools. <laughs> but, but um, you know, I like a lot of what I'm doing now. I feel like I'm working with fabulous people. Um, I feel like I'm at a point in my career. I don't, I don't need my name on anything. You know, I don't need to be the first author on another page. I'm not going for tenure, you know, or anything else. I don't need to be the PI on a grant. Um, what I want to be is a facilitator. The great joy that I get out of this is, is making the collaboration work better. You know, I'm, I feel like I'm successful when the people that I love and respect and work with are successful. And so the more that I can achieve that, the better I'm going to feel every day. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Wildlife Health Connections podcast. If you liked what you heard, go hit that subscribe button and leave us a review. You can check us out on social media for some good content and advance notice of upcoming episodes. You can also get more information at wildlifehealth.org slash podcast. <laughs>